Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number three of Gone But Never Forgotten. With me again this week is my lovely wife, Julie. Hello again. This week's episode is on a location, which is a little bit different than past episodes, and that will be explained a little more as we go. This week's episode is on Boston Bar, British Columbia. As a reminder, these episodes do contain mature subject matter that can be disturbing to some listeners. This week's episode in particular contains descriptions of murder and sexual assault. Boston Bar, British Columbia. On their website, they list themselves as the gateway to the Fraser Canyon in British Columbia. The original settlement in the area was Coyum, a First Nation village. By the 1860s, the area became known as Boston Bar because many Americans settled in the area during the Fraser Canyon Gold Rush. A bar is a gold-bearing sandbar or riverbank, and Boston's was the Chinook name for Americans. When the Canadian Pacific Railway was completed in 1885, the town's name was changed to North Bend, and Boston Bar was the name used for the community on the east side of the Fraser River. Both Boston Bar and North Bend would be known as forestry towns for much of their existence. However, over the last decade or so, the mill closure and the fact that the logging has stopped has shrunk the towns recently a great deal. The towns now pride themselves on providing services for travelers on the Trans-Canada Highway and CN and CP Rail maintain staff bunkhouses in Boston Bar and North Bend. Boston Bar today is known for the serenity and beauty of the forested area and landscape and the area has become a prime area for retirees and summer residents. Unfortunately, however, because the area is so sparsely populated and heavily forested, it has also had a few incidents over the years that captured the attention of true crime enthusiasts. Amélie Sacalise was a 28-year-old Belgian woman who was hitchhiking across Canada and doing odd jobs to make money. She had obtained a work permit in November of 2017 and was last working as a fruit picker in Penticton, British Columbia. On August 22, 2018, Amélie left her hostel in Penticton, hitchhiking first to Caremios, then to Headley, where she was picked up by Mr. Sean McKenzie, a man who was living with his mother in Oliver, B.C. McKenzie was on his way to Vancouver to meet up with a friend to do some piecework doing catering at a resource camp. Security footage from a gas station in Princeton shows the pair arriving at the gas station around 4 p.m. Emily appeared to be in no distress. However, on the night of August 22, 2018, the body of Amelie Sakilis would be found as the RCMP were called to just north of Boston Bar because of a suspicious occurrence. The RCMP would arrive on the scene and find her body. A man was arrested at the scene, but he would later be released. The man that would be arrested at the scene was indeed Mr. Sean McKenzie. On September 14, 2018, Sean McKenzie would again be arrested and charged with first-degree murder in the death of Amelie. Amelie was described by people that knew her as a free spirit and an independent world traveler who was known to hitchhike, sofa surf, and she loved to meet new people. Exploring Canada in such ways was a lifelong dream for Amelie. 
Unfortunately, such a ride and such a meet was what led to her untimely death. On November 19, 2019, Sean McKenzie would plead guilty to second-degree murder and be sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 23 years. According to the agreed statement of facts, this is what happened between Mr. McKenzie and Amelie. As the pair were driving west through Manning Park, Mr. McKenzie stopped on a pullout along the road to look for the charger for his cell phone. That, however, would be a ruse, and without warning, he would grab his hunting knife and strike Amelie multiple times in the back of the head with it. Amelie would scream loudly and attempt to fight back against McKenzie, even biting him, but he would overpower her, tie her hands together with electrical tape, and drag her to the makeshift bed in the back of his van where he would then remove her clothes. At this point, Amelie would ask Mackenzie if he was going to kill her, and he told her that he was not. Amelie would then ask him if he was going to rape her. He looked at her for a long time and then told her that yes, he was going to rape her. She asked him why and he simply said, because, just because. According to the statement of facts, Mackenzie struggled to get an erection, but did briefly penetrate Amelie. Because of his inability to get an erection, Mackenzie was filled with a severe rage and rip, flipped Amelie onto her stomach and prolonged and escalated the sexual assault on Amelie. When he was done raping her, he tied her feet together and started to drive again towards Boston Bar. According to court documents, Amelie was not ready to give up, however, and around 6.30 p.m., she managed to get loose from her restraints. She lunged into the front, screaming. She pulled at the steering wheel, and she grabbed Mackenzie by the throat. She then opened the passenger door of the vehicle and began to scream for help. Realizing that things were escalating beyond his control, Mackenzie would slam the brakes, block Amelie from the door, and lock it. From here, Amelie would grab Mackenzie's hunting knife and attack him, but Mackenzie would grab the knife by the blade, cutting himself in the process, but wrestling the knife from Amelie. He would then force Amelie back into the back of the van, and he again bound her hands and feet together. Mackenzie would drive about 12 kilometers north of Boston Bar, turn onto a side road, and stop in a quiet, remote, wooded area that had a lot of dumped garbage. He then helped Amelie to get dressed and told her that they were going to go over to the bushes to, quote, have a little talk and decide where to go from there. When Amelie went to get up, though, Mackenzie would stab her with his hunting knife, first in the stomach, then in the neck, torso, and her extremities. The coroner report would state that Amelie had been stabbed a total of 42 times. After disposing of Amelie and her bags, Mackenzie made sure that she was not alive enough to escape, and then fled, leaving her to die in the bushes. About five minutes later, Mackenzie would pull over to make a phone call to a friend of his. He told his friend that he had discovered the body of Amelie. The friend said that Mackenzie should call and report the body to police, which he did, stating to them that he was also a victim of the assault that led to her death. This likely to explain the injuries to his hand from grabbing the knife blade. As mentioned, Mackenzie was arrested at the scene and later released. 
but would again be arrested and charged officially on September 14, 2018. When he was arrested the second time, he gave a detailed confession. At the time of his confession, Mackenzie stated that he did not know why he committed the crimes, and he stated that he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time. More than a year later, while at his sentencing hearing, Mackenzie still was unable to explain his actions and told the court that he was unable to articulate the words for what happened and why it happened. Now, we know that this is not an unsolved murder or missing persons case. We had a listener reach out to us, Megan Martin, who wanted us to share the story of Alicia Berg, a friend of hers who was killed about a year ago in the same area. We chose to tell the heartbreaking story of Amelie Sackalis and the background of Boston Bar because we wanted to set the scene and explain the landscape and location and also show that the area has been seen as prime place to commit murder and to attempt to cover up murder in the past. Alicia Berg's story is one that sadly we could not find a lot of information on. This led me to wonder why. Why is that the case? Oftentimes, I find myself wondering that when looking into a story that catches my eye at first blush, and sadly many times the reason is that there is just not enough people kicking the tires and not enough people fighting for answers. Another reason that comes up a lot is that you can get a feel for how the victim is viewed by the police and people at large pretty quickly when you read about an unsolved crime of any kind. The sad truth is that when those things happen, a case tends to get tucked away or pushed further down the stack. Now, I don't completely blame officers here, as I am a firm believer that sadly there are far more cases than there is time available to solve them all. But on the flip side of that, our hearts break when we see a story like Alicia's, because as we come up on the one-year anniversary, there are perhaps now more questions than answers. In the early morning hours of June 3rd, 2020, police found a young woman in the area near Boston Bar, just east of the Yale Tunnel, after receiving information that someone had reported finding a body on the side of the highway. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, I hit, would announce soon after that the body belonged to that of Alicia Hatterina Berg, a young woman who lived in the Fraser Valley, and it was reported that she lived a, quote, transient lifestyle within the region. First responders reported that when they arrived at the scene, Alicia was badly injured, but still alive. However, she would sadly succumb to her injuries at the scene. As we tried to unravel the layers and see if we could find out more about Alicia and how she wound up on the side of the highway injured and ultimately dead, information was hard to come by. A lot of the background would come in the form of information provided by people that knew Alicia and knew Alicia's mom, so nothing is concrete, but we do want to share what we know. The first thing that I would like to tackle is that a couple of different sources have told us that perhaps the transient lifestyle that was tagged into Alicia was unfair. For many people, when they read the word transient, they think homeless. And sadly, in a lot of missing people and unsolved murder cases, that is a death knell to public interest, so to speak, and it can lead to a lack of information. Throughout history, often it is prostitutes and homeless people who find themselves as long-term cold cases and unsolved cases. 
From what we have been able to piece together, Alicia was definitely a little troubled, but that could come to be expected from the life that she had been living leading up to her untimely death. Here is what we were able to piece together. First and foremost, Alicia Berg was a mom. Around 2014, Alicia had a very difficult pregnancy and childbirth, but she gave birth to a son. As anyone who has ever had a child can tell you, these are the best and worst times to start off. But of course, when you hear that someone has a difficult pregnancy, that tells you that things must have been difficult mentally, physically, and emotionally. A few days after Alicia gave birth to her son, she then would find out that her mom had cancer. As someone who found out that his mom had cancer around that same age that Alicia would have been at that time, I can tell you that is an earth-shattering occurrence, especially coming off of having a difficult childbirth. One could only imagine how this poor girl was feeling. Unfortunately, though, for Alicia, things would only continue to get worse, and only a few short days later, her mom would pass away from cancer. Now, anyone with a heart can see that this poor girl must have been going through. The joys and pains of having a child, the heartbreak that comes with finding out that your mother is seriously ill, and of course the quick turnaround to the fact that she lost her mother as well. All within a couple of weeks of one another. Many people go through many years of life with those events all well spaced out and still do not deal well. Alicia had to deal with one earth-shattering event right after another. From what we can tell, aside from her young son, Alicia was living with the father of her child for some time. But we have received multiple reports that the relationship was perhaps not all that it could have been. We did our best to try and at least track some details down on the father of her son, but unfortunately were unable to find anything out. With the utter and unforgivable lack of information that is available on Alicia's life and details, if there are any on her case, one can only hope and pray that it is because there is an ongoing investigation that prevents any information from leaking out. Any other reason, aside from that, is heartbreaking. We would be remiss without also mentioning that Alicia was not completely unknown to police either. Alicia was in fact due to be before the courts on July 15, 2020 for multiple charges of uttering threats, uttering threats to burn, destroy or damage in connection, sorry, let me try that again, multiple charges of uttering threats, uttering threats to burn, destroy or damage in connection with two separate incidents from the summer of 2019. She would also face two more charges of breach in the fall of 2019 in regard to those first charges. The case is filed as a so-called K case, which means that it is labeled as a domestic matter. She was scheduled to face trial for all four charges on August 21st, 2020. All of this to say, Alicia's last few years on this earth appear to have been traumatic, painful, and the end of her young life was incredibly sad, unexpected, and to this point unresolved, which is what, of course, attracted us to her story. From the limited information that we have been able to find, we can be sure that Alicia was left feeling alone and hurt for much of her last few years on this earth. One can read into stories that we heard from people that knew her as well as her domestic issues that there were also other issues going on between Alicia and the father of her son. Unfortunately, with the resources available to us, we have not been able to dive in deeper to get to know the intricate details. 
What we do know also is that at one point, Alicia was living with her boyfriend and her child. Before charges came down on that, apparently that led to her, quote, transient lifestyle, unquote. As one would become transient when they were no longer allowed or permitted to live where they once had. We hope that Alicia's story can find some resolution. How did Alicia... How did Alicia end up just outside of Boston Bar on the side of the highway clinging to life? Who was responsible for the injuries that she would eventually succumb to? The police did list the death as suspicious, so even though there are not a lot of details, it can be plainly seen from what we do know that someone somewhere has some idea of what happened to Alicia back on June 2nd and 3rd, 2020. As we now approach the one-year anniversary of Alicia's death, If you know something, there is no time like the present to come out with it. Whoever hurt Alicia in her last moments alive is well aware of what they have done and likely have told someone else what they did. Also, if you happen to be traveling in and around the area of Boston Bar, British Columbia, on the date in question, and have dash cam video or even saw anything that could be helpful, please reach out to the iHit phone number, 1-877-511-IHIT. Or you can also report anything pertaining to crime anonymously by calling Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. At the time of her murder, Alicia was five foot six, 140 pounds, had green hair, and was wearing a gray hoodie, gray black sweatpants, and sandals. Help us to find answers for friends, family, and all of those concerned. Let's get the person responsible behind bars where they belong. Let's show whoever is responsible that regardless of what is or is not being done behind the scenes, Alicia Berg is gone, but will never be forgotten. Before I have a quick chat with Julie to end the episode, um, I do want to mention my sources verbally for this. Um, We looked around and there wasn't a lot. I did use www.colonanow.com, globalnews.ca, the Vancouver Sun, and the Langley Advanced Times, as well as conversations with people who knew Alicia. So, Julie, what did you think of this research in this episode and these two stories? Uh, well, the it's the first one is a little bit hard to listen to or to you know get to know. Um, it's just sad to hear that things like this happened. Um, but I do like how you know one area can it well is considered um, you know a good place for crime. Um, so it is nice to kind of shed some light on a specific area so we know where to look out or where to search for certain things. Yeah, for sure. I know this one was a little bit more graphic than some of the episodes um, that we've done so far. Um, I guess it was more, especially in Emily's case, it was more because there was more available. Um, It's heartbreaking to me, um, you know, as we mentioned, one of our listeners reached out to us about this case and it's it's sad, you know, you want to help, especially when you have a person actually reaching out to you and asking if you can cover this case. And there's just not a lot of information out there. Mm-hmm. Um, as I wrote in the show notes, like, I really hope that that's because there's something going on. Um, we haven't really covered the Mr. Big scenario, but I almost wonder if maybe there's something like that going on in this situation. 
Um, but it's just, it's, it's eerie. It's eerie that we're coming up on the one year anniversary of, of this poor girl passing mm-hmm. away, being found on the side of the road. And there's nothing, you yeah. know, I can't even find yeah. another pa- newspaper article on yeah. this that wasn't from the original incident. Yeah. Um, I do, I do appreciate that, that listener Megan did reach out to you because a lot of times it's the early, um, like the, you share things early on, then information come out, you get the people talking, get like eyes looking around, ears listening. So it is awesome that, you know, we can help with that in the early stages of what happened here. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. I honestly hope that someone out there is listening to this that knows what happened and, uh, you know, will either turn themselves in if that's the case or, you know, call Crime Stoppers or call the police. Um, I mean, we definitely need more of these criminals off of our streets. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, definitely. So let's come together and help this person in this story. If you know anything, reach out um, to the numbers listed um, and let's get some justice. I don't think there's any better way to end the episode. I do want to quickly mention one more time, um, we have started a Patreon page if anyone does want to help support us as we move forward. Uh, long-term goals, I would like to get um, a logo done and uh, you know get some merchandise if we can do that in the future. Um, but yeah, you can find us on Patreon at Gone But Never Forgotten. Um, also, send us an email. Message us on Facebook like Megan did. Hit us up on Twitter. You can find us anywhere. Um, and honestly, like if you tell us to leave something anonymous, it'll be left anonymous. But um, we are always looking for cases to cover and to interact with our fans. So don't ever be afraid to reach out to us. Um, At that, I'll say thank you once again, and we'll see you next time on Gone But Never Forgotten.